Hello and welcome to the Inerrant Word Podcast. Today I talk with Dr. Vic Reisner. Dr. Reisner is the director of the Francis Asbury Institute. He also currently serves as the president of the Fundamental Wesleyan Society and general editor of the Fundamental Wesleyan Publications. He received his Bachelor of Theology from Kansas City College and Bible School in 1977. He received a Master of Divinity from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University in 1987. He received his Doctor of Ministry degree from Asbury Theological Seminary in 1994. Prior to his work at the Francis Asbury Society, Dr. Reisner served as a pastor for 44 years. He also served as president of Southern Methodist College in Lawrence, South Carolina until he retired in 2019. Today we continue the second part of a three-part discussion on the doctrine of inerrancy from a Wesleyan-Arminian perspective. I encourage you to go back and listen to part one with Dr. Bill Urey if you have not already. Now let's tune in to today's conversation with Dr. Reisner. Well, Dr. Reisner, thank you for joining me on the Inerrant Word podcast. Well, I'm glad to be with you, Clay. First, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and where you went to school and what uh, degrees you have and what uh, work you've done? Uh, You don't have to go through the whole bibliography, but maybe just some of the highlights. Okay. Um, I was uh, called to preach in um, college and graduated in 1977 and began my first church uh, pastorate. I went back to Biola University and the seminary there, which was Talbot School of Theology, and I got my MDiv from Talbot in 1987, but I was pastoring full-time this entire process. Then later in 1994, I got a Doctor of Ministry degree from Asbury Theological Seminary. And so sometimes that's referred to as a terminal degree, but I don't think that's an accurate statement. We still learn all of our lives. I was in a postdoctorate Wesley seminar with Ken Collins after that had happened. And I think at 68 years of age, I'm learning more and studying harder now than I ever have. Well, that's great. Thank you for your uh, contributions and uh could you talk a little bit about uh, some of the books that you've written? Well, my my first uh, attempt um, was a development of my master's thesis, later became a doctoral dissertation, and uh, then I did postdoctoral studies, really dealing with the history and the theology of the doctrine of holiness, particularly um entire sanctification. That's been a lifelong work. Um, But I really felt like that I needed to be writing commentaries, which would help busy pastors and and busy lay leaders um, have access to sound Wesleyan Arminian material. So many of the commentaries are either moderately or completely Calvinistic or modernistic. And um, we have dealt with these issues in our own heritage. And to go back and to mine all of the resources, I did that first with the book of Romans. 
and that commentary came out in in 2003. Then um, I've done a lot of other commentary uh, books since then, uh, and I focused more on writing commentaries than writing topical treatises because busy people don't have time to read the extracurricular material, but they always have a need to prepare a sermon or a, a lesson or a devotional thought. And if I can put at their fingertips what our great uh, forefathers have said, Wesley and Clark and Fletcher and people like that, I think I'm doing a great service um, to the next generation. So I've spent a lifetime continuing to put that in a in an accessible form. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you for your work. Uh, just coming from me personally, I, I've benefited from your work. Uh, one of those works being the importance of inerrancy, which we'll get to in just a little a little bit. But uh, first, I wanted to ask you about your sort of your testimony with the Bible. When did you first trust the Bible? I was raised in a conservative holiness denomination that uh, just accepted the full authority of Scripture. We never discussed it in an academic or intellectual way, but um, in my growing up, the church I attended, each of the, I only had four pastors in my whole lifetime before I became a pastor. Every one of those pastors preached expositionally, and they assumed the full authority of Scripture. And I grew up in an environment where it was only people way out in left field didn't believe the Bible. I, I was raised in a very fervent atmosphere where the Bible was accepted, even if it was not defended in an apologetic kind of way. Well, that's wonderful. It sounds like you came from a very uh, trusted background uh, where your parents taught you the scriptures, and that's that's wonderful to hear. Um, when did you first become acquainted with the term inerrancy? Probably not until 1976. At that time, I was in Bible college, and Harold Lenzel had, had written his very controversial book, The Battle for the Bible. And that was the first time I became aware of the intellectual questions and debates uh, concerning biblical authority. And, and that book was very uh, uh, influential in my development. And I believe you once told me that you were mentored by Daryl McCarthy. Now, for those who are listening, uh, Daryl McCarthy uh, was one of the signers of the uh, Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Yes. Uh, one of the nine, yes. I think, Wesleyan scholars who did. That's right. Um, could you tell me a little bit about your relationship with him? And uh, Well, we've known each other our whole lives because um, his, his mother's brother married my dad's sister. Now, we are not actually kin, but we share some of the same aunts and uncles. Um, and so Daryl has been a positive influence in my life just a little bit older when you get as old as we are uh it doesn't matter anymore um but he was two three years older than i was growing up but was very influential in my later development now could you talk about uh, he wrote an article in uh the 
inerrancy in the church uh, book. Yes. Um, and he wrote also other articles as well um, that dealt with the authority and the inerrancy of scripture. Can you talk about your, his influence on you in terms of the inerrancy of scripture? Yes. Yes. Of course, the first chapter that you're referring to was in an inerrancy book dealing on the history of inerrancy. And he dealt with um, uh, American Methodism and its affirmation of inerrancy. He had one of the last articles that was uh, advocating inerrancy that was published in the Wesleyan Theological Journal for a long, long, long time. I tried to get an article in and it was rejected. And, and it later went through a metamorphosis, and that's how my little book, The Importance of Inerrancy, came to being after it was rejected by several um, entities. But Daryl did have um, an article in, in the Wesleyan Theological Journal. Daryl was really on the cutting edge of this battle uh, and, and was really a jump ahead of some of the rest of us. That's great. Now, you mentioned the Methodist uh, movement and then also... Uh, that de deals with the Wesleyan uh, Arminian movement. And uh, we can't talk about the Wesleyan Arminian movement without talking about John Wesley. Um, mm -hmm. We talk about how John Wesley viewed the Bible and if his views lined up with the Chicago statement. Now there's always a danger in, in reading back later developments into earlier uh, writers or leaders. Uh, and so Wesley did not use the precise language that has developed later on. But I believe that he is in sympathy with the concept. Um, let me give you the, the, the longer answer here. The, the church uh, traditionally held that the scripture was without error. And until the end of the 18th century, it was taken for granted that, um, that the Bible was fully authoritative. Um, the word inerrancy first became current in the middle of the 19th century. And obviously, Wesley was dead by then. So he did not use the precise language uh, that, that we're using today. But I think he's reflecting the long tradition of faithful authority of scripture. Um, so the term inspiration, the Bible was inspired. That, that was the work of the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit was to ensure the integrity of the text or the infallibility or the inerrancy of the text. But people began to split hairs. And so we later had to add the word plenary or full inspiration, not to change the meaning, but to affirm the same meaning. Then people could split that hair, so we had to fall back on infallible. And finally, um, infallible was redefined in such a way that you could affirm or deny inerrancy. And so we had to go to the more specific term. So uh, what I'm saying is we have had to refine our language in order to affirm this long broken tradition. But back before all of the technical language 
Wesley said, nay, if there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. He realized the law of non-contradiction. And if, if the Bible was uh, correct at some points and in error at other points, it could not have come from an almighty God who knows everything. And so he set it up as kind of a uh, all or nothing debate. Uh, it's either all inspired or it's not from God whatsoever. Could you talk about um, the nine Wesleyan scholars who signed the Chicago Statement? Do you know much about you know, kind of their background? And To my knowledge, the nine Wesleyan Arminians to sign the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy included Alan Coppage, Wilbur T. Dayton, Ralph Earl, Eldon Furman, Dennis Kinlaw, Daryl McCarthy, James Earl Massey, Ace Gevington Wood, and Lawrence Wood. Um, without reminiscing over all of these names, of course, I work now for the Francis Asbury Society that was started by Kinlaw, and his son-in-law was Alan Coppage. Alan is still active, and... Um, I had Lawrence Wood as my doctoral advisor, and I've already mentioned my relationship to Daryl McCarthy. Um, I don't guess I know personally or knew the other people, but that's a significant uh, representation of Wesleyan Armenian scholarship. When the Wesleyan Theological Society was formed, it was formed uh, with a statement of inerrancy. Um, what's very interesting is that after the first four journals had been published, um, that statement was removed. And uh, I'm uh, I'm ahead of what you were going to ask me. Would I include any more material in my book if I were to redo it? I didn't know at that time. What I now know is that uh, really the early Wesleyan Armenian scholars that form the the Wesleyan Theological Society affirmed biblical inerrancy, but they did not want to push out uh, younger scholars who might not have that conviction. And so I found out that it was by a vote of 14 to 12 that they dropped that requirement for membership in the society. And so that was dropped in 1969. But I think that's rather significant because you're at a crossroads there. And, and the decision to open it up beyond biblical inerrancy, and this would be in contrast to the Evangelical Theological Society, for instance, you realize that when that gate was opened, it was really opened by two votes. And yet that's that's made a great deal of difference uh, across the years that have passed since. Yeah, it's very significant to know uh, the scholars in which they affirmed biblical inerrancy in the Wesley, well, Wesley Theological Society. Um, could you talk about why modern uh, Wesleyan scholars do not hold to inerrancy? Now, that's not including all of them. I want to clarify. Yes, 
um, but yeah. there are many that don't. Um, and and actually, Clay, um, in a sense, you're asking me to speculate because I can't get in their head, and I don't want to falsely accuse them of anything. But I'm going to give you uh, three probable reasons why they have moved away or have been uncomfortable with inerrancy. And the first is simply that some of them have not given it the attention that it deserves. And, and the problem in research and in academia is over-specialization. There are scholars who are especially Trinitarian scholars, or they're, they're Christ, Christology scholars, or they're interested in one aspect or another of theology. And so I, I, I know in one instance, um, uh, a Nazarene scholar just conceded to me he had not given it much, not given inerrancy much attention. Now, the problem is that we can be so overly specialized in one area that we have not built a sufficient foundation. You see, the foundation for our authority, regardless of what topic or subtopic we, we want to pursue, the foundation is, uh, is scripture. I mean, how are we going to develop our, our theology of the Trinity or our theology of Christ or our eschatology or whatever? How are we going to develop that and, unless we have worked out the source by which we're going to draw our doctrine? And so I, I think, first of all, that they have not given enough attention to this because their specialty is something else. Uh, secondly, I think that in some cases, at least, they wanted academic acceptance. And um, inerrancy was associated or tainted with the label of fundamentalism or Calvinism. And I think that there you have um, a logical fallacy called guilt by association. A, a doctrine cannot be accepted or rejected just because it is uh, adhered to by people who are in other traditions. Uh, that's really not good scholarship in and of itself. Uh, but whether we're talking of fundamentalism, evangelicalism, Calvinism, or even modernism, we cannot have a knee-jerk reaction that rejects doctrines simply because they are associated with other traditions. Um, to the degree that we are all a part of the Christian tradition, there should be and there will be some overlapping, at least history, of doctrine. And I think we have to let every doctrine stand or fall on its own merits. But I think that it is more respectable to quote from more liberal or modernist type writers than it is to quote from more of our fundamentalist cousins in the past that we are supposedly embarrassed of. And, and so I, I think there has been a departure from the past because of all of the associations, uh, some of which would have been negative. Now, um, could we talk about why 
Wesleyan should affirm the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. I know we've talked about the Chicago statement and those who who did affirm it, um, but why should it give it be given a fair shake? Well, you know, people could say, Clay, that this was just a man-made statement. And yet throughout the history of Christendom, there have been ecumenical conferences or councils, and there have been statements and creeds that have been definitive in the past. And the question is, if the, the, the scholars and the saints of past ages could speak with one voice on a subject and give direction to the whole church, if that could happen in the past, why couldn't it happen in the present? And so uh, we're talking about creedal statements. There are those who, who have objection to anything that's a creedal statement because they feel like that's man-made. And, and yet we're simply summarizing what the scripture itself would say on a given topic. And so um, I, I think that uh, godly men and women can still come together if they can agree on their final authority. That's, that's really what divides us. If, they, if we can agree on our final authority, then we can work out. And I think it's good for people of different traditions to come together. And um, the Chicago statement, I think, was a very adequate statement that reflected um, the long evangelical tradition and really the mainline tradition in the past. Now, I guess the problem is, does this become a litmus test? And do we just say, I affirm the Chicago statement? Well, no, you, we need to talk about what's in it. You don't just say pass or fail. Are you Chicago or non-Chicago? We don't want to go down that route. Um, and I think that uh, as new issues come to the forefront, there needs to continually be more such councils uh, or gatherings in which the church can hammer out these things. But I think it was a very adequate statement. And I, uh, I, I think it, it's a very thorough statement of what the church historically has always believed. Now, you also had a uh, friendship that was built with uh, Dr. Norman Geisler towards the end of his life. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that as well, if you don't mind. Okay. Well, that's interesting because when I was at Biola, I took apologetics uh, under Mark Hanna. And our textbook, our main textbook, was written by Norm Geisler. And so um, I, I was in awe of Norm Geisler, who came to lecture our class when I was uh, a master's student. And I got him to autograph my textbook and always cherish that. But many, many years later, after a long process of trying to get traction, on, on my little book for biblical inerrancy, which I've already referred to as, as being rejected by, by several journals or, or publishers, I reached out to Norm Geisler. And um, it was kind of a long shot, if you want to use that language. 
but it happened to be on my birthday that I got a reply from him, which was the endorsement on the back of the book. I think that's one of the best birthday gifts I ever had. And as a result of, of him responding to me, and I didn't think he would, I, I, I thought he was probably too busy. Uh, at that time, I was president of a small Bible college in Orangeburg, South Carolina, Southern Methodist College. And he agreed to come to Orangeburg and give lectures. And uh, so we we spent time together and uh, he promoted, uh, and I would say he's not, he would not self-identify as a Wesleyan Armenian, but this was, again, a, a subject of common uh, agreement, the authority and inerrancy of scripture. And so uh, I think he passed away maybe two or three years after that, but I cherish uh, those times I got to spend with him first at, uh, you know, at the beginning of my adult life and then at the end of his. That's wonderful. And I'm sure that, uh, that was a great birthday gift to get on. Yes. Uh, could you also talk about, um, who are some other Wesleyan theologians that you could point to, uh, for people to read and understand the orthodox view of inerrancy and inspiration? Well, um, I shared with you uh, before before this podcast began that um, Dennis Kinlaw had a vision to to edit and and to to inspire a systematic theology project in which every one of of the men he was mentoring would write a chapter. And so he mentored such people as, as Tom McCall and Bill Urey, Al Coppage, John Oswalt, um, uh, Gary Cockrell, Chris Bounds, Steve Blakemore. And uh, these, these chapters and this raw material is in the final stages of editing. Volume one should be out by March of, of 2024. I'm doing some of the, the research editing on the project now. But everyone in this project, it'll be a multi-volume Wesleyan Armenian systematic theology. And every contributor uh, would affirm biblical inerrancy. Um, I, I should also throw in names like Matt Ayers, uh, Fred Sanders, Brian Shelton, um, here in Wilmore, um, I, I have the privilege of, of having interaction with, with some of these great minds. And um, not everything they write, of course, is on the subject of biblical inerrancy, but everything they write is going to be informed with that assumption. And that means that they're not going to lead us way out in left field. Yes, and I would also point my listeners to your book, uh, The Importance of Inerrancy, which uh, I want to uh, promote on my podcast as uh, the next uh, subscribers to the podcast will receive a, a copy of the book. So um, please go and subscribe to the podcast and uh, you'll receive a copy from me. Um, I also want to point out uh, that there are uh, great books also um, that you have written, uh, Holy Living, uh, the two-volume set, and then also uh, your Systematic Theology of Fundamental Wesleyan Systematic Theology, which also affirms biblical inerrancy as well. Yes, 
but thank you for mentioning those. Do you have any closing thoughts, Dr. Reasoner, about inerrancy and its importance that the church should should take heed? The battle has always been over authority. Who has the last word? And and the the fall in in Genesis chapter three was the questioning of whether God's words were trustworthy. And and Satan sometimes has directly attacked the word of God. Sometimes he has subtly attacked the word of God. But the the fundamental starting point is by what authority? And um, we have one of the things I would add, one of the things I would uh, expand if I were rewriting my little book is to reach out to all of our friends, our brothers and sisters at the Global Methodist Church. They're at a point of great opportunity, but they're also at a point of crossroads. And, and the most fundamental issue for them to settle is biblical authority because everything else they will have to wrestle with will be influenced by the authority of scripture. And so what we're saying here is that uh, when the Bible has holes poked in it, I'm, I'm just using street language here. When the Bible is discredited, then what happens is um, our final authority has been replaced. Let's say that I found mistakes in the Bible. Then I would actually be setting myself up as the new ultimate authority. And I would tell you, Clay, and your listeners, when you could trust the Bible and when you could not trust the Bible. You see, insidiously, what's happening is I'm asking you to trust me. And so I am now trumping biblical authority. So realize there will always be an ultimate authority. There can never be more than one ultimate authority. And if the Bible is not our ultimate authority, we will revert to someone or something that becomes our ultimate authority. I think in our world today, most of us have set ourselves up as the ultimate authority, and we decide what's right or wrong, and that's very subjective. We need an objective basis for, for determining what truth is. And so realize that um, the, the greater issue is not inerrancy. The greater issue is authority. Um, we could have a raving madman uh, who's just babbling, and, and his, his words could be transcribed without error. But they still would not have any authority because he doesn't have any credibility. What's at stake here is that God has spoken. And because of who it is who is speaking, he has authority. And, and the real issue is that the purpose of divine inspiration was to ensure that what God said actually got transmitted to us. And we have the word of God. 
if we accept the fact it's the word of God, then who can trump that? But the devil wants to chip away at the word of God and tell us, well, it's just a man-made document. It, it evolved over a long period of time. And we have all these uh, anonymous redactors that added and subtracted. And, and, and it becomes nothing more than a literary production that we can take or leave at will. Well, many people are leaving it and looking for something else. Realize there's a vacuum. We will have a final authority. And if it's not the scripture, what will it be? And, and the only hope for us individually, the only hope for our family, and the only hope for civilization is to reclaim biblical authority, not simply in an intellectual sense, but in a practical and moral and ethical sense, if the Bible is the word of God, then we need to heed it. We need to obey it. We need to believe it. And, and that's, that's our salvation. And nothing else will work in its place. Amen. That's a good word to end on. Uh, Dr. Reasoner, it has been a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, thank you for your words of wisdom. And uh, I pray and hope that your ministry continues to thrive there in Kentucky. Thanks. Thanks, Clay. It's a joy to be with you. God bless you and God bless your ministry. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Vic Reasoner, for coming on the show. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review. Until next time, go and read the word. Mm -hmm.